All right. Well, you got your Bibles this morning? You got them? Wave them in the air for me so I could see the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Amen. Uh, if you don't have Bibles or you don't have your own Bible, you can read someone next to you. We'll have the verses up on screen, but I'd love for you to just have the words in front of your face. This, this is God speaking to you, right? We really believe that. God is speaking to you, and I'm going to do my best to get what he says to you and to us right, but I might get it wrong. So it's good to have the word of the Lord before you, in front of you, so that you could see it and go with it uh, as we move together through Ephesians. Speaking of uh, Ephesians, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 20. Through 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 through 24. If you remember last week, we spoke, or Paul spoke, as he was led by the Holy Spirit, of the old man and the old. There's the old man right there, just creeping up on me. I repent. Okay, I'll just try not to move my waist. <clears throat> Paul was speaking about the old man and the old desires and that, that old uh, person that we would ordinarily call the sin nature that we as Christians have been saved from and out of. We spent, and we, we spoke about this uh, last week, that the gospel, before it emphasizes the good news, shows us why there is bad news to begin with. And that bad news is the old man, the old sinful nature. But as we move into verse 20, Paul starts to show us a different side to life. And if you will, let's just read that together, starting in verse 20. Paul says to us, but that is not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him because the truth is in Jesus. You took off your former way of life, the old self, that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we see what Paul has written and perhaps for some of us that are in bondage, in seasons of defeat, in depression, in low places, in a dark night of the soul, perhaps we see what you are saying, but it is not very realistic to us. I pray that Holy Spirit, you would come, you would open up the windows of heaven, you would pour out a blessing upon us today to understand your word, that you are more than just the speaker of truth. Christ, you are truth incarnate. So we pray that you would reveal yourself to us today in a powerful way, that we would be healed, that we would be renewed, that we would be transformed, that we would leave here more in tune with our new identities in Jesus Christ than ever before. We pray that we would leave our baggage behind in this place and leave this building understanding our identities in Christ. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Uh, in the past few years, we had a college group called Adorn. It was a college uh, and young adults group that used to meet on Friday nights. We would meet every Friday. Yeah. <laughs> We'd meet every Friday night to worship and open up the scriptures and, and worship God and fellowship with one another. But maybe once or twice throughout the year, we would retreat to either a mountain or to a lake where we would take all of that stuff in a condensed form. We would call these the mountaintop experiences, uh, youth groups and men's groups and uh, women's groups. All of us tended to do this type of thing where once during the year we would leave our lives, we would isolate ourselves on a mountain, and we would immerse ourselves with people of like mind in the scriptures, in the word of God, in, in worship and in fellowship together. It was a condensed version of what we experienced on a regular basis. And for those of us who went to those things with just one singular focus, we wanted Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We got Him in a condensed, powerful, quick form. But for others whose focus quite wasn't on Jesus but on themselves, when I would go to some of these things with my focus on myself, those mountaintop experiences did nothing except to exacerbate my own problems in my own sight. We often call these a camp high. We've nicknamed them a camp high. For some people, they are nothing more than isolation. You take someone who is struggling, who is defeated, who is depressed, who is run down by the enemy, you isolate them from all of their problems, put them with people and friends who are thinking the exact same thing, and all of a sudden their problems disappear. Now if your focus is on Jesus, wonderful. We should do those once a year events like every week. But if you go in with your eyes focused on yourself, those things simply become camp highs. You'll notice, and we noticed, that Monday, come Monday or Tuesday, when we got back from isolation with one another, that we hit our normal job schedule, our normal struggles, our normal problems, the normal ways that the enemy attacks us. All of a sudden, nothing changed, except that we were now experiencing a bit of a withdrawal. Sunday morning is the new camp high. Now for those of us that treat Sunday morning, the corporate gathering, as that place where we open up the scriptures, we sing, and we, we, uh, in, we come together as one body, we do not forsake the gathering of, of the brethren, we view this as that which focuses our eyes on Christ so you go into your Monday morning, your Monday afternoon, with your eyes rejuvenated, refocused, realigned to the author and the perfecter of your faith. But for those of us, we somehow, some of us cannot control some of those things we came into Sunday morning with. We still cannot control our anger. We cannot stop our addictions. We are still at the mercy of our idols. We are still in that place of despair. And for some of you, you are living Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday in utter defeat, hoping in little more than your weekly camp high, where for two hours in the week you will be isolated from the real world. 
locked in a building with loud music and people who think the same as you. Wondering if come Monday there is more to the Christian life than perpetual defeat. You can go into a Christian bookstore or into Barnes and Nobles or into Borders or in any of those places, walk into the religious aisle and find plenty of New York Times bestsellers that will offer to you their version of your solution. It looks something like this. Therapeutic. Spirituality. You are defeated because you have the wrong view of yourself. There is actually nothing really wrong with you. You're actually a great person. You're perfect. You just need to realize your perfection in the mess that you live in. Walk down the religious section of any bookstore in the nation and you will find therapeutic religion as far as the eye can see. There's nothing wrong with you. You're great. You're lovely. Everything is right with you. Everything around you is what's going on wrong. So what you need to do is have a better view of yourself. Boost your self-esteem. Pick yourself up. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Be a better Christian. Pray harder. Seven steps to realize your full potential. Blah, 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 blah. Paul steps in with Ephesians, not caring about New York Times best-selling list, and he says the problem lies in you. He describes the human nature as the old self, as we talked about from verse 17 through 19. But he starts to allude a little bit more to the old self in verse, uh, excuse me, in verse 23, uh, 22. The old self is corrupted by deceitful desires. He's speaking about a corruption that is not just a once in a while or once in a, on an occasion or a simple event or something uh, behavioral that you did. I, I sinned on this particular occasion and now I am sinful. No, he's speaking about an ongoing process of ruin, a spiritual entropy, if you will, a downfall. We sometimes think, and this is true, that sin is doing the wrong things. And that it is. God commands us to do what he has called us to do. We don't do it. Sin. But it goes much deeper than that. Sin is not just not doing what you're supposed to do. It's not just doing the wrong things. Sin is the brokenness of the right things that you're trying to do. It leaks into your good motives, your intentions. Your dreams, your ambitions. Why else would good church-going people and good churches begin to, in a fit of irony, fight for one another's parishioners? Why would an organization that is so well-known for fighting and fighting for the freedom of child soldiers and on the, on the brink of one of the biggest pushes of their agenda, see their leader publicly fall apart? Why would pro-lifers turn against each other? Why would one of the most famous cyclists in the world on one hand do so much for the furtherance of cancer research and yet be alleged to cheat his way through championship after championship? How in the world can we discover how to split an atom only to see that research develop 
the atomic bomb, the list goes on and on and on and on. It's not just that we do bad things. It's that our very goodness is leaking with sin. Sin affects everything. Good things that we do, even the good things that we endeavor to do, flow from hearts that have been soured, even by imperceptible sin that we do not know. Our ideas are tainted by idols. Our affections are underlied by addictions. Our dreams are enslaved to deceit, even deceit that we might ourselves be fooled by. Sin is caused by rebellion to God, but sin itself causes spiritual entropy. Things just fall apart. Humanity is stuck in the middle of that cycle. You look out of the world, you leave this bubble on Sunday morning, this perfect bubble that if you were to stay here long enough, you would find out it is not so much perfect. You leave on Sunday, you go out into the parking lot, and you see that human beings are not as perfect as you would hope. Humanity is stuck in an awful cycle, but to Christians, Paul unleashes Ephesians chapter 4 to say that for you, the one who believes in the Messiah, that broken spiral, that spiritual entropy has been supernaturally halted. There is for you a new way of life and a new way of living. He begins to describe this in a couple ways. He speaks of being converted to Christ and immersion in Christ. What does it mean to be converted to Christ? Well, he says, he starts off in verse 20. That is not, speaking of that, that past life, that spiritual entropy, that destruction, that sinful lifestyle, that is not how you learned about the Messiah. Verse 21, assuming you heard about him. When Paul says, I'm assuming you heard about the Messiah, he's not just saying, I, I, I'm assuming that you heard a couple words about him. He's not speaking about just an audible uh, capture of a few factoids about God. He's speaking about a certain type of hearing that makes its way by the power of the Holy Spirit into your heart to change your disposition. Paul would say this in 1 Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 2, verse 13, that we praise God that you heard the message we were giving, that it wasn't just a message we were giving, it was the very message of God and you welcomed it. Your hearing turned into a supernatural welcoming. He would say the same thing as he describes what he's doing in verse 22 through 24 is describing that conversion. What does it mean to hear, the, to hear of Christ? It means that there's been an exchange of natures. Something inherent to who you are has been changed. It's not just that you walk down the aisle. It's not just that you decided to follow another worldview. It's that something ingrained inside, inherent within you as a human being has been altered. It doesn't mean that you were a plumber and now you will go into the full-time vocation. It doesn't mean that you are now an artist, but now you're not anymore. Your identity has been maintained, but something deep-seated below that has been changed by the power of God. You took off your old self, Paul says, verse 22. You put on the new self, verse 24. You were recreated in his likeness. You've undergone a complete overhaul, but it's not just a conversion. It's not just turning towards 
a different master, but it is now, as Paul would describe, an immersion in that person. See that in the rest of 21. He doesn't just say, assuming you heard about him, but assuming that you were also taught about him. You were taught by him. What Paul is probably referring to are new believers who maybe they don't know a thing about Christ. Maybe they don't know any doctrines, any teachings. They don't know their left hand from their right hand in the kingdom of God. But they know that Christ is worth following to their death. And so they are converted by faith. But then Paul says, from that moment on, you begin to immerse yourself in this person that you did not know much of. Now this could have been Doctrinal, uh, doctrine classes, this could be uh, an old school term, catechesis. This could be uh, you and a buddy going into a pizza parlor and opening up your, your Bibles and learning. This could be you opening up some theological books. It could be uh, tapping into a sermon podcast. Whatever it is, Paul says the natural course of someone who has been attracted to Christ in a salvific way is I want more. I want to immerse myself. I don't just want to be on the, on the, on, on the, on the skirt of what God is doing. I, I want to jump into the, the deep end. If salvation is you just testing the waters, then immersion is you diving into the deepest part. I want this of Christ. Now, so many people that I've spoken to have thought that to be immersed in that type of death means some type of formal training like Bible school or seminary. It does not. All that it means is that the man or the woman or the child who is so arrested by the Spirit of God to know Christ as long as they can think, as long as they can read, and as long as they can pray, they can know the depths of the inexhaustible riches of Christ. Just devote yourself to reading, to thinking, to praying. Because the truth that Paul often speaks about is different than the truth that any other worldview speaks of. Any other world religion. Paul would say that this truth is alive. It is living and active. It has the ability not just for you to study it, but for it to study you. The Word of God is living and active. It has the ability to divide between the soul and spirit, between the, the, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You are reading the Scriptures, but the Scriptures are reading you. They're like a mirror showing you who you are in light of who Christ is. Martin Luther used to pray two hours a day. When he was off to get his haircut, his personal barber by the name of Peter Beskendorf once asked him after a period of time, he thought he would ask him, Master Luther, how is it that you pray? Teach me how to pray. Luther, in the kindness of his heart, went home and began to pen a letter for his friend Peter. It was called A Simple Way to Pray for a Good Friend. It was 40 pages long. <laughs> Anything but a simple way. Centuries later, a publishing house would get a hold of that letter and condense it into a readable form. Uh, I forget the title. I think it's called Martin Luther's uh, Quiet Time. But in that section of that book was called A Garland Prayer. And this was, this was, uh, this was uh, descriptive of Martin Luther's form of praying. 
a garland. It was made of four strands. And Martin Luther would grab his Bible, and this is how he prayed on a daily basis. He would look at the scriptures, and first of all, the four strands, he would see and he would ask himself, what does this verse teach me? What is the meaning of this verse? After he discovered the meaning, he would then ask the second strand. He would ask, well, what can I learn from this verse in order, how can this verse teach me to give praise to God? What in this verse will cause me to praise God? Then third, he would ask, what in this verse that I have, I have been uh, mulling over will now cause me to confess What in my life can I confess by seeing what this verse is teaching me about myself and about God? And then fourthly, he would then ask, what then can I aspire to after reading this verse? And he would ask these four things of himself, of every verse that he read, and this was how he prayed. And he would just pick one verse. He might start with the Ten Commandments. He would start with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. And he would ask himself these four things. What does this teach about God and about me and about the condition of the world? Then he would ask himself, how can I use this verse to praise my God? And what can I confess of my own sin? And fourthly, what can I aspire to? How can I soar to the greatest heights because of this verse? And he would begin to mull over these four things, over that single verse or those couple of verses until the Holy Spirit began to preach to his soul. He would say to his friend Peter, if the Holy Spirit should come when these thoughts are in your mind and begin to preach to your heart, giving you rich and enlightened thoughts, then give him the honor. Let your preconceived ideas go, be quiet, and listen to him who can talk better than you. And note what he proclaims and write it down so you will experience miracles, as David says. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things. Out of thy law. Martin Luther would begin to pray over the word of God until God began to speak to Martin Luther. He immersed himself in Christ until Christ began to speak to him. You know what he's doing? Martin Luther was renewing his mind. Have you ever experienced this? I know so many of you have. Perhaps you're just reading like in your Papa's on chair. You just got your Bible open. It's six in the morning. You woke up because you got to go to work at seven. Your eyes are, your eyelids are just like concrete and you're just trying to keep them open. You're reading and you don't know anything that you're reading, but all of a sudden you see this verse and it pops out at you. It might be a verse that you've read a thousand times before then, but all of a sudden something pops out at you and arrests your heart and speaks to you in that moment. That's the Holy Spirit preaching to you. And when you entertain what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart, you are letting Him renew your mind. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says that the Holy Spirit is the one who renews our spirits and our souls by regeneration. Have you noticed that everything up until this point has been in a certain tense? Look at verse 20. That is not how you learned about the Messiah. What's that? Past tense. Assuming that you heard about him. What is that? Past tense. Assuming that you were taught about him. Past tense. 22. You took off your former way of life. Past tense. Verse 23. You are being renewed in the spirit. Present tense. You see what's happening right now? 
the conversion that was wrought about in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing experiential way of life. What was done by the power of the gospel is something that is cultivated until the day that you and I go to be with the Lord. You are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. First of all, this happens because something that had mastery over you has now been unlocked. There is an undoing of sin's power. Paul would say in Romans chapter 6 verse 11, You too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ. He would then go on, but remember Paul's letter to the Romans. He wrote chapter upon chapter of what? You are radically depraved sinners. You don't even know your left hand from your right. Chapter 7, I can't even do the right thing that I want to do. What does he say to the believer in chapter 6? Don't let sin reign. There has been a subtle shift in our nature. There has been the breaking and undoing of sin's power so that Paul can say to you and I, without patronizing you one bit, stop letting sin rule over you. You are able now to not sin. The continual taking off of your old self. The things that you used to do, man. The things that you used to love that you hate now. You can now practice not doing anymore. But you don't just practice not doing stuff. You practice putting on something else. Adorning yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the lusts of the flesh. You are expelling one thing for another. You've got new desires and new motivations and new longings. Paul is saying, obey the desires that the Holy Spirit has put in your heart. Entertain those new desires. And in so doing, you are putting off the old and putting on the new. Christianity is at its very core experiential. It is not for the armchair theologians. It is not for those who would look afar and speculate about it. It is for those who want to follow after Christ and want His divine power poured out on their laps. In fact, the Apostle Peter would say, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By these, by what? By His life and God, uh, by His, uh, excuse me, glory and goodness, He has given us very great and precious promises. So that through them, listen to this, you may share in the divine nature. And in sharing in the divine nature, you may escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. You know what Peter is saying? Everything that you need in order to be renewed and in order to experience the divine nature of God has been dropped in your lap for you to have. Your move. Just because I give you a car doesn't mean you're going to drive it. Before I met my wife, Brianna, I lived by myself in a unique Santa Barbara home, otherwise known as a bachelor pad. 
And I didn't have anything in my house except clutter. I didn't have furniture. I didn't have a box spring. I didn't have stuff. Well, I had stuff, but it formed mounds in various corners of my house. I had roommates, also dudes. They also had their own piles of stuff. And our house was just a pile of stuff. I had this problem. I was a bit of a miser. I, 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 I collected things. I could never throw away or part with or leave something in case that I maybe had need of it one day. (laughs) Whether it was an old piece of clothing or an old piece of furniture or some dead batteries, whatever it is, I collected everything and I wasn't good at organizing it so my, my apartment just looked like a bunch of piles of stuff. In my first apartment, I brought with me two mattresses. I didn't have a box spring, so I had two mattresses. When I moved into the second apartment in Santa Barbara, I moved, uh, one of my friends gave me two more mattresses, so now I had four mattresses. (laughs) Then I moved to Carpinteria and got an apartment, and there waiting for me were two more mattresses, so I had six mattresses. I didn't know what to do with them, and I didn't know what, uh, I didn't have a box spring, so I just piled all six mattresses (laughs) on top of one another. If you've ever wondered what a box spring is supposed to do, try sleeping on six mattresses. I would sleep throughout the night and I would sway like this. (laughs) When Brianna got a hold of me, she started to notice this really quick. The first thing that she noticed was that I have been wearing black shirts my entire life. And when we met, I had been wearing the same two black shirts for many, many years. And her being the fashionable one in the the relationship sought to change that. So she walked up to me and when we got married she said, you know what, you need to to get some new clothes. And I said, that's a great idea. Okay. Following week, I was wearing the same black shirt with the holes in it. She said, what's your problem? You need to wear some new clothes. That's gross. You're gross. (laughs) I said, I know, I know following week, same black shirt. Then she had an idea. She would buy me new clothes. She went out down to State Street, started buying me a whole slew of nothing black. She bought me blue shirts. She bought me green shirts. She bought me button-up shirts. She bought me ties. She bought me stuff I don't even know how to pronounce. She got all of this stuff, folded it, put it in my drawers, and said, I got you a new wardrobe. I said, thank you. And I continued to wear my black shirts. Until the point where when I was gone at work, Brianna went into my cupboards and began to take all of my old garbage and burned them. (laughs) She took some to the Goodwill. She took some to the trash. She gave some away. Some were hand-me-downs. Some she tossed under the bottom of the bed, but she tossed away all of my stuff. And it was at that point where I had no other choice but to wear a blue shirt. I have since backslidden since then, but. (laughs) I couldn't put on new clothes until she threw away my old ones. Some of you in this room are experiencing so much defeat and you can't for the life of you, uh, you can't for the life of you answer why, even though you are a Christian, 
are experiencing such low defeat. You are not, uh, you can't answer, you can't answer for yourself why in the world things are at such a low point and in such a place of despair and why you cannot for the life of you defeat that sin which so easily entangles you. It is perhaps because you have never stopped to throw away your old clothes. You're like me, wondering why your clothes are falling apart and you just haven't gotten rid of them yet. You keep wearing the same tattered remains that you had before. Oh yeah, I am a Christian. I will go to church on Sunday, but on Monday, I'm going back to that old environment. I'm going back to this old group of people. I'm doing these old practices because I can. No! Paul says there is something inherently different about you, Christian. You must take off the old rags. But it's not just taking off old rags. That would be very awkward. You've got to put on something better than before. Thomas Calmers, an old theologian, once wrote an article called The Power, uh, the Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he would write in this, art, in this book, he would say that the heart is so finely tuned and so enslaved to its own worship that it must have as the object of its affection something greater than itself. So if you are idolizing something which is causing you to sin, to take away that idol doesn't mean anything for you other than you will find some other idol to fill its place. No, you must expulse, you must push out, you must reject that other idol with the expulsive power of something far greater. You take off your old rags, you put on and adorn the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul and Christ and other apostles and some of us in this room otherwise call repentance. Repentance isn't just knocking off bad behavior. It's moving away from something to something better. It's moving away from your sin and moving towards Christ. It's turning from corruption and putting on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, as Paul says, in righteousness and purity of the truth. That's repentance. Repentance is the entry point to the experiential. We sometimes, unfortunately, think of repentance as a bad word in Christianity. I better not repent of anything because people will start to see that I am a sinner. The apostles said that times of refreshing are quick to follow times of repentance. Repentance is the entry point to renewal and the experiential. For in it, in repentance, you are saying that idol, that sin, that lifestyle can no longer satisfy my inherent desires. I am turning towards Christ and Christ alone. I am not doing that anymore. I am turning towards Christ and Christ alone. I will not be caught up in that or entangled in that anymore. I am turning towards Christ and Christ alone. Without repentance, we tend to turn towards our own self-reliance. Some of you in this church have been through so much. Some of you have been through divorce, broken families, broken marriages. You've been betrayed. You've been the betrayer. You've been abused. Some of you have been disappointed in life. 
Some of you have been throttled by a bad economy. Some of you have been impoverished. You know what it's like to be poor. Some of you have fell sick. Some of you have addictions that you can't beat. Some of you have defeat, have experienced defeat. So many different facets. And some of you that are in moments like that have built your entire identity around those things that disappoint you. For example, I am addicted to pornography, therefore I am a porn addict, some of you might say. Or I am so driven by greed that I am going to work 100 hours a week, I am a workaholic, that's who I am. I can't control my rage. I'm just the mean guy, the mean lady. Some of you have built your entire identity not around disappointments but around triumphs. In your self-reliance, you have deceived yourself enough to think that you have achieved some level of justification for your own life. So you are the successful entrepreneur. That's what gets you up in the morning. That's what helps you sleep at night. You are the life of the party. You are the nice person. You are the person that everyone turns to when they need help. You are the trusty, loyal friend. You are the good Christian person. The list goes on. In both of these scenarios, whether you build your identity around disappointment or you build your identity around the triumphs in your life, you have failed to repent because your identities are still wrapped in something else. Among the many gods in the city of Ephesus were two local deities by the name of Hasias and Dekaios. Translated into English, they would be called holy and just. The exact same phrase that Paul uses when he says, you were created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity and truth, or holiness, justice. I don't know if Paul is thinking specifically about those things, but I know, according to what Acts says, that Paul was in the habit of going from city to city, exposing and confronting the idols of that city. He certainly would have been familiar with these two. Is it possible that Paul is stepping in on the scene at Ephesus with people who have built their identities around these false heroes saying and confronting them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Your salvation comes from, your righteousness comes from, your justice, your justification comes from God in Christ alone. I believe he would say the same thing to you, church. Your circumstances may uh, explain you, but they don't have to define you. And renewing your mind is when the Christian then, after going through hell in this life, then desires to be redefined by Christ and not the periphery. Some of you would say, well, I was converted once upon a time, or I came to faith in Christ Yesterday, but how can I renew my mind? Every time I leave the Sunday morning camp high, I get beaten down by the enemy. What is the path to renewal? Well, first of all, you must understand that one day you will be renewed completely and perfectly when you see Jesus Christ face to face. First John chapter 3, verse 3 says that we know that when he appears, we, listen to this, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Do you know what it means to be perfectly human? To be just like Jesus. 
And that is how the human life is supposed to be well spent, to be more like Christ. That's why Paul has been going on for, for chapter after chapter, urging us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And John tells us that at that moment that we see him face to face as no human ever has, we will be instantaneously transformed, glorified, perfected. But listen to this next sentence. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Listen to that. There will one be a day where we will see Jesus face to face and just the sight of him will transform you into a glorified state. But until that moment, your hope in that day is what transforms you. Your hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ is what renews your mind. It is the ongoing taking off of the old patterns, putting on the new that is in Christ Jesus You don't need to float from camp high to camp high. You don't need to wait until Sunday morning. Paul would say in Romans chapter 10, he would say you don't need to reach into the heavens to bring Christ down near to you. You don't need a mountaintop experience. Nor do you need to go into the abyss and bring him back up to where you are. He's closer than you think. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is perhaps the best news that some of us have ever heard because for some of you, you're spending your Christian life trying to reach something that you can't attain. Here on Sunday, asking yourself, how can I become like God? The gospel tells you that we could not become like God. So God became like us. Jesus Christ, Paul says, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he has done everything that is required for your salvation. To renew your mind in this life is to constantly rehearse everything that Christ has done for you. It is to swim in. It is to immerse yourself. It is to constantly put on replay. It is to preach him to yourself until the day that you die. And you'll never be done with that. Why? Because you are seeing Christ dimly in this life. And until you see him face to face, it'll be an ongoing trajectory where it opens continually until that day comes. That's why Paul would say, don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. In heaven, when we have glorified bodies, it'll also mean that we are able to see Christ in a way that would be impossible for you and I right now. I don't know if that means that we have thousands of new senses, but I know that here on this earth we have five senses. Five senses in which to use to set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Using every sense that you have to constantly rehearse and replay and preach this Christ to yourself. Conversion is Christ opening your eyes to see him. The experience of that conversion is you chasing after him with all you got.
as we worship today. Some of you have made your way with a foot in the door. You've gotten saved, but you're still living a life of defeat. And I'm here to tell you that that defeat for you has been broken already by the power of the cross. Perhaps for you, you just need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you this morning. Some of you are still addicted, perhaps to pornography or to drugs or to alcohol. Some of you cannot control your rage. Some of you, your marriages are flailing and you don't know what to do about it. Some of you, your children hate you. You don't know what to do about it. Your families are falling apart. You don't know what to do about it. The list goes on. There's sin, a spiritual entropy still lingering in your life and you don't know what to do about it. I'm here to tell you, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to fall upon you, to reveal the person who has done everything needed about it. Let's kneel at his feet this morning and call him in our time of need. Heavenly Father, I ask you right now that as we begin to sing words that are true about you, you would make those words come alive in our hearts. You would rescue us from bondage, transfer us to the kingdom of your marvelous son. For those of us who are saved, we pray for a deeper filling of the Holy Spirit to come upon us today. We don't simply want to be Christians who are surviving, Lord. We want to be Christians who are thriving. Lord, let our church be a group of people who are thriving according to the principles of the kingdom of God. We love you. God, show your love for us today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.